This morning's first scripture reading comes to us from the book of Psalms, the 84th Psalm. Let's listen together for a word from God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, indeed it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Happy are those who live in your house, ever singing your praise. Happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. The God of gods will be seen in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look at the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than live in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Happy is everyone who trusts in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'd like to start by just asking a crowd, a housekeeping question. Maybe it's because I'm wearing polyester. Is it warm in here? Could we knock that down, Dave, to like 72 or so? I'd, it feels like it's 806. When we came in this morning, it was like a meat locker in here, so we cranked it up, and that's what we get. Thank you, thank you. And because the hot air is about to start. Ah. In fact, speaking of hot air, I'm going to need my traffic brand to blow it really fast so I can read the text. Sometimes when you do a children's sermon, you lose things along the way. Our second reading this morning is from uh, the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It is, uh, we're continuing in this middle section of Luke's Gospel. Last week we read and meditated upon, reflected on the parable of the fig tree and the theme of the fig tree throughout Scripture. Uh, today is a parable that arises out of a real-life situation. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you today. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of the leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, Jesus told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. 
And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return, and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? May the meditations of our hearts together upon your word to us today, your offering of yourself to us, in scripture and in the person of Christ himself, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I alluded and mentioned alluded to and mentioned football earlier. It is football season. Colleges started playing yesterday. American football. My son, the soccer player, calls soccer football, which is just wrong in America. Uh, but this is a story. I'll start with a football story. Coach Suge Jordan, as some of you know, who are of a certain generation coached at the University of Auburn for many years. In fact, he coached basketball there before he coached football. He, he played there as well, and he is still the winningest coach ever at Auburn University in Alabama, one of the great football traditions, college traditions in this country. One time, Coach Shug asked his former linebacker, a graduate, one of his p- former players, who was then playing pro football for the Miami Dolphins, if Mike would help Coach Shug and Auburn with some recruiting. Mike said, sure, coach, whatever you want. What kind of player are you looking for? The coach said, well, Mike, you know there's that fellow, uh, you knock him down and he just stays down. And Mike said, we don't want him, do we, coach? No, Mike, that's right, we don't want him. And then there's that fellow, you know, Mike, well, you knock him down, he gets up, you knock him down again, and then he stays down. And Mike said, we don't want him either, coach, do we? Coach said, no, Mike, we don't want him. But Mike, you know, there's that other fellow. You knock him down, he gets up. You knock him down, he gets up. You knock him down, he gets up. And Mike said, that's the guy we want, isn't it, coach, right? The coach goes, no, Mike, we don't want him either. We want the guy who's knocking everybody down. (laughs) That's the guy we want. That's the guy we want. We want the winner. That's the woman, that's the person we want. That's the one we want to be invited to their house for dinner. We want to sit next to them at the event. They want us to be with them at the cafeteria, maybe, or we want to be invited to their wedding uh, reception. We want to be followers on their Instagram account. We want them to follow us. We want to be friends with them on Facebook, because deep down, it's the winners that we'd all like to be, the kind of people we want to be in our heart of hearts. We think we need to be. We don't want to be seen with the ones who are always being knocked down. We don't want to be, have sand kicked in our face. We're told we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to achieve. We're supposed to get out there and 
win the game. We don't want to be associated with the poor, the crippled, the not-so-bright, the lame, the blind, the unsuccessful, the frustrated, people with problems. But these are the very people, as we've seen in this text already, that we're encouraged not just to associate with, but to welcome, to embrace, and to spend our time with as Jesus' followers. But it's always been the human condition. It's not new that we want to exalt ourselves, to sort of make ourselves as strong as we can. And I think, from a pastoral perspective, as the world becomes more turbulent and uncertain, that same human condition has really exposed itself now, is more clear than ever before. We like to exalt ourselves, make ourselves feel better about who we are, because that's the one thing we think we can control in a world that is so out of control these days. This morning, look with me at this interesting story in the 14th chapter of Luke about a dinner party at a very prominent Pharisee's house to which Jesus is invited. This Pharisee is obviously an important and wealthy man and someone who can afford to have a bunch of guests come over and feed them. It's not cheap. You know when you get an invitation like that, it's going to be heavy. You know, one of those kind of invitations with raised lettering. And you know when you get one of those that the hors d'oeuvres are going to be good. I love parties like that. I don't even know who it is sometimes, but I go because the food's going to be good. If you play your cards right, maybe you can do some networking at a dinner party like that. Maybe get sort of upgraded in your professional life. And as the guests arrive at this dinner party, Jesus notices how all of them, the first ones in, start grabbing the best seats close to the host, the places, the traditional places of honor. You know, what we do, we put our jackets over the back of the table or maybe our cell phone or something we, 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 we don't really want to lose, but we can sort of risk because the payoff is to have that really excellent seat. We put everything, put that down there, and then we sort of let everybody know that we've got that seat. You're too late. I've already been here. I know how to play this game. I'm someone who belongs here. Jesus is also a guest at this dinner party, and he sees all this. And as he observes, he launches into a parable. I imagine him standing there, not yet having taken his seat. But before we consider that parable, it's really always helpful in any scripture reading, but especially in this case today, to look at the context in which this passage appears. We're in 14 now, chapter 14 of Luke, but in chapter 13... Jesus has pointed out how Jerusalem, the great city of God, the capital of his nation, the centerpiece of his religion, has rejected prophets for generations, for centuries. And that the people of God, his own people, us, have a habit of not listening, even though they hear again and again and again the word and the message that God would give them. So in chapter 13, as a setup to what we're reading today, in 14, listen to the words Jesus says. Strive to enter through the narrow door because when the owner shuts that door, you're going to stand outside and you're going to knock and you're going to beg the owner to open the door for you and the owner is going to say, I do not know you. Go away. I think this parable today is in that 
theme. And this parable is a parable of recognition. It's kind of simple, really. Jesus is telling us right here in Luke how he's going to recognize us, how we should live so that recognition will take place. This is one of mine. How he'll know that we are one of those people. We're not perfect. We don't think we're perfect, but we're trying to stick close to this person, this, this, this person who lived a real historical life, who somehow embodied the grace and the love of God more than any other person ever could or did. In this parable, in chapter 14, Luke kicks off a whole series of parables. So before you have this, this sort of prophetic condemnation of those who will not listen, and in the, afterwards, after this parable today, we have much, a, much, a series of other parables. The parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son, the rich man Lazarus, the unjust judge, and the persistent widow. And we put all of these parables together that Jesus tells one after the other, and we get a picture from Jesus himself of how we are to live this life, to walk this walk, this journey that we have to go on, so that we will be recognizable to our God and to ourselves. The ones who take those premium seats at the dinner party, the ones who get there first, put their coats down, their cell phones, their purses, make sure everybody knows that they have made reservations for the best seats in the house, they assume that their quick thinking and decisive action have made them the most important guests at this dinner. But they, Jesus tells us, soon will be embarrassed. So he's basically telling us, you may be good, you may be quick, you may be smart, you may be important, you may even be noble and virtuous. But before long, there's going to be someone else who walks into this dinner party who's more noble, more accomplished, more virtuous than you. And so now Jesus tells us that the ones who got there first, who grabbed the places of honor before anybody else could get them, are going to be asked at some point in a very humiliating fashion to get up, grab all their stuff, and go to the back row. They will be dishonored before all. Have you ever gone to the theater or a ball game and kind of misread your ticket? I have. You know, uh, you take a look and your eyes light up and you think you're Bob Euchre. That's a certain generational reference. Hey, I'm in the front row, right? And so you make a big scene of walking to your seat in the front row. You talk really loudly. You kind of sigh, you know, because you're used to this. You put your fancy $12 soda in that fancy $12 soda cup holder, and you smile at all the other people around you because we all know that we all belong here. This is the kind of seat I deserve, a fitting of a person of my stature. And then the usher appears and humbly says, uh, Sir, can I see your ticket? Um, Mr. Horn, that is not, you're, this is, you're not sitting in seat A1. This is section A1. Your seat is seat triple Z 72 up there. So I've got to grab all my stuff, my large Coke and my jacket and my big giant number one finger sign, and I have to go way up there where I wish I had binoculars. It is humiliating. 
We all want other people to see us as deserving of the best seat in the house. Jesus knows that, as he tells his story today. In fourth and fifth grade, I've told this to Anne-Marie a few times, I was first chair clarinet in the school orchestra. I practiced pretty hard until my cheeks hurt. I actually have fond memories of being in the orchestra and being part of making music, but what obviously mattered to me most, much more than my musical career, was being first chair. Because I'm telling, about it, telling you about it right now. It happened about 50 years ago. I'm still like that. Maybe you are at times too. Early, earlier this summer, I was honored to preside at a wedding of a young man uh, who grew up in this congregation and his bride in the beautiful setting of Ver Burlington, Vermont. Now, Burlington, Vermont is about a six-something hour drive from here, and I needed to get back on Sunday morning, after, for Sunday morning, after the Saturday evening wedding. So the family, very kindly, purchased me a plane ticket. It happens sometimes when I do sort of off-campus weddings. And when we were called to get on the plane for the flight up to Burlington, I was very pleased and surprised to experience something I rarely do. I was in business class, which is essentially first class to me. And so I got on the plane first, which I never do. I'm not in the military. I'm, not in, I'm never in group one. I'm always in group 14, right? And I sat there and smiled condescendingly at the other people who walked onto the plane afterwards. I waited for my hot towel and my real meal and my actual silverware, because that's what I think I sort of vaguely remember is what actually goes on in first class on the other side of that curtain. I waited, in other words, for what was due to me as a reverend, as a minister of word and sacrament, the Presbyterian Church, parentheses, U, U period, S period, A period, close parentheses. The problem is, it's a 45-minute flight to Burlington. I got a Coke with ice in a plastic cup, and that's it. Still frustrated about it. We all want that external affirmation of our awesomeness, of our value. It soothes our insecurities, and God knows we have a lot of those. No one wants to end up red-faced and be demoted publicly. They have to go back into coach. And who wouldn't want to be singled out and brought up to first class, to the best and highest seat? The problem is that striving to be the best and sort of scrambling and winning most of the time that best seat is like drinking, my favorite drink in the world is a chocolate milkshake, like drinking a milkshake out of a cup with a hole in the bottom. It's just never enough. You gotta keep winning that best seat. But eventually the value that you're searching for, grasping for, is gonna drain away. As I tell my kids, Will and Maggie, you know what they call the medical student who ends up placing, being ranked last in their class? Doctor. Doctor, right? It's really not about grades. I tell my students in seminary, it was about grades in high school to get into college, but after that, not so much. And by the time you're in seminary, no committee is gonna care what you got in you know, ancient Hebrew or Old Testament. They just don't care. They wanna know if you can be their pastor. 
And sometimes the best students aren't the best pastors. The truth is that Jesus in telling this story is more shrewd than we might give him credit for in this teaching, which seems simplistic on the surface. Back then and today in a society where people are always looking to place themselves themselves above other people, Jesus is getting us to think about who we are below, who we are just at our basic humanness, without all of those trappings and all those anxieties and worries about whether we're going to get where we think we need to be. Just who we are, really, and what really, truly matters. Whatever the case, if we get this message today, this message of the dinner party, it does tend to change our attitude. I just want to share quickly a revelation to me. I have been a slightly, emphasized slightly, aggressive driver my whole life. I know how to handle a car, and not everybody knows how to drive, and therefore it's my job to teach them. (laughs) I'm getting better about that. And one way is the four-way stop. Because in New Jersey, people don't seem to know the rules, which is first come, first serve. I have now somehow gotten to the point in my long life where I'm just going to let them go. Just let them go. I don't need to win. I don't need, and it's so liberating. I never really thought I could do it, but I'm just, you know what, go. Just go. I, I got here first. Please, after you. It feels so good to not have to win at the four-way stop. I know it's a little simplistic and hard to admit to you, but I I'm going to ask for grace. Historians tell the story of Charlemagne, the, really the greatest Christian ruler of the Middle Ages. After his death, a mighty funeral procession left his castle in France, and when the royal casket arrived at the cemetery with great pomp and circumstance, at the cathedral cemetery, it was met by a local bishop who barred the cathedral door, even to the casket of the great king Charlemagne. Who comes, the bishop asked, as was the custom. Charlemagne, lord and king of the Holy Roman Empire, proclaimed the emperor's proud herald. Him I know not, said the bishop. Who comes? The herald, a bit shaken, because no one ever questioned the king or his authority, replied, Charles the Great, a good and honest man of the earth. Him I know not, said the bishop. Who comes? And the herald, now completely crushed and nervous, responded, Charles, a lowly sinner who begs the gift and the grace of Christ. To which the bishop, Christ's representative, responded, Enter, my son, and receive Christ's gift of life. The point, of course, is that in God's eyes, we're all equally needy and equally precious. Charlemagne, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, you and I, none of us will ever be good enough to force entrance into the presence of God. It is a gift. It's given to us regardless of our qualifications. So maybe we should spend less time focusing on our qualifications and more on that grace, on that gift, which is ours. Mark Trotter, in one of his books, tells the story of Robert Coles, the famous psychiatrist who wrote himself a lot of books. 
who teaches at Harvard, and when Coles himself was a medical student at Harvard Medical School, he volunteered to go to work at the Catholic Worker, the uh, social service agency and newspaper founded by Dorothy Day, who is actually one of the most amazing people ever, and there's a, there's a campaign now to make her a saint, Dorothy Day. So Robert Coles, as a medical student, a Harvard medical student, arrived at the premises of the Catholic Worker, and he asked to see Dorothy Day. He wanted to, to go right to the top. He was a Harvard medical student, after all. And he went in and saw her sitting in the kitchen, and he saw her sitting at a table talking to someone. And Robert Coles, even then, had enough medical training and know-how to understand that the person he was, she was sitting with was clearly addicted to some kind of dangerous substance and living a def difficult, challenging life. He was disheveled. He was obviously a homeless street person. He had problems. Dorothy Day was sitting at the table with him, listening intently to what the man had to say. Now remember this parable that we're looking at today about the banquet and the seats at the table. Dorothy Day, this woman who's probably going to be a saint pretty soon, was at the table with the street person, giving him her full attention. And so she didn't notice when Coles came into the room. So he stood beside the door and waited for her to finish. And when she did finish her conversation with this man, Dorothy Day looked up. And then she noticed Colts and she said, would you like to speak to one of us? She was famous. The man with her was a nobody, a derelict. You want to speak to one of us? From her point of view, she and that man, just children of God. What a gift that she could live like that, and would that we could as well. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and the ones who humble themselves will be exalted. Our quote this morning from Tim Keller that concludes that at the beginning of our bulletin will conclude our time together now on this text. Keller wrote, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. When you go to a wedding reception and you get you look to find your little name, you know, what table you're going to be sitting at. If there are two digits or maybe three digits, don't worry about it. You're sitting closer to the food, you're sitting closer to the restroom, and you're humbling yourself in a way that's going to allow blessedness for the couple and for you. Because you're going to be with God and with your true self. May it be so. Amen.